Hello and welcome again. It's lo- we're so glad that you can join us on site today. And hello and welcome to those joining us online. Uh, we're a church community that has been placed in Sydney's inner west. And so our mission is to help people find the fullness of life in Jesus with us. And if you've been hanging around or living in the inner west long enough, you would know that the inner west is very dog-friendly. Only in the inner west do you have pubs where you can bring your dog to have a schooner right beside you. Uh, Only in the inner west is Dogs in Pubs, a political campaign uh, at the local councils. And Amy and I, we've been living in Roselle for a couple of years, and we've even considered getting a dog. Um, Because having a dog or a pet, we consider them as like a family member, don't we? Uh, When you start to have kids, you kind of like the idea of children growing up with a dog in the household. But here's the thing with dogs. Dogs are domesticated wolves. Genetically, dogs come from wolves. Breeders over the generations have taken wolves and they've domesticated them into your average, harmless, family-friendly dog. Here's the thing. Generations of Christians have done the same thing to Jesus. Over the generations, Christians have domesticated Jesus into your average, harmless, family-friendly God. We have domesticated Jesus. We've taken out of Jesus anything that is fearsome, anything that is fierce, anything that is awesome about Jesus. And this is the problem with domesticating Jesus. When you don't see Jesus rightly, you don't worship Jesus fully. When we don't see Jesus rightly, we don't worship Jesus fully because we've domesticated Jesus, we made Jesus into our own kind of image, and we desperately need to meet Jesus that John sees in Revelation. Because if we don't see Jesus rightly, we're not going to worship Jesus fully. And that is the goal of the book of Revelation. The goal is stated in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. We are to not only hear the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is just not about information that we hear, but we also to take it to heart. It's about formation. It's about reforming the desires of our heart. It's about shaping our lives by the testimony of Jesus. It's changing, it's keeping, it's obeying the word of God. And when we hear and see Jesus rightly, we will will be transformed to worship Jesus fully. So let's kick off the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. And in Revelation chapter 1, we see four truths four realities about Jesus that we need to experience in order to worship Jesus fully. The first thing we see is Jesus' triune divinity. Read with me from verse 4. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you who, from him who is, who was, who is to come, from the seven spirit 
before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. You see, John is referencing three divine beings. Number one, the one who is, who was, and is to come. That's an Old Testament way of referring to God the Father. Two, the seven spirits, and we'll come back to that. And three, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So we've got God the Father, and we've got Jesus, the Son of God. But what about the seven spirits? I thought there was only one Holy Spirit. So here we have the first symbol in the book of Revelation. The number seven in the Bible is symbolic of perfection, fullness, holiness, total completion, brought to its fullness and finality. So, for example, when we read Genesis about how God created the whole world in seven days, it doesn't necessarily mean that God created the world in seven days literally. More likely, it's that God created the world in seven days symbolically. Before sin, God's creation was perfect. It was seven. It was holy. It was totally complete. And so when we get to the throne room of God in the rest of Revelation, where we see the seven spirits before the throne, it doesn't mean that there are seven literal spirits. It's referring to the Holy Spirit before the throne room of God. The Holy Spirit is totally complete, totally perfect, co-divine with God the Father and God the Son. And so for us to hear and see Jesus rightly, we've got to understand that Jesus isn't just an ordinary Jewish carpenter or that he's just a nice moral teacher or perhaps some people think he's just an absolute crazy guy. We must see him as a member of the triune God. Jesus, if he's not a member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then, well, his words don't weigh that much, doesn't it? But John wants the hearers to receive his words as the very words of God. So he says, I greet you in the name of God, God the Father who is eternal. I greet you in the name of God the Spirit who is absolutely perfect. I greet you in the name of the God of the Son, the one who died, who rose to life, and is now the King of all kings. That's what... John wants you to hear and see. To see Jesus rightly, we need to see Jesus' triune divinity. The second thing we see is Jesus' story. So read with me from verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. This is just one sentence summary of pretty much the whole New Testament. John, in a really action-packed sentence, summarized the whole gospel. There you have redemption. He has loved us. He has freed us. There you have substitutionary sacrifice. He died in our place for our sin. And now we have been born into his kingdom. So it's not just you and you and you and you having all individual relationships with Jesus, but it's that we all have been born into a kingdom. 
a kingdom of God, a God's kingdom who comes not through guns and wars, but it's a kingdom of priests who is attracting the world to meet the God who has revealed himself through Jesus. And this is a very important thing for us to know because all throughout the book of Revelation, we're going to have this contrast between the kingdom of this world, symbolized by Babylon, and the kingdom of heaven. And what we're going to find is that Babylon and heaven do things very differently. The kingdom of God doesn't come with boots and guns, but it comes as priests willing to bleed for their enemies. Jesus' gospel story tells us that our sins are shackles. Our sins are shackles. And this is why Satan is such a liar. He tempts us with sin, saying, this will make you feel great. This will make you feel free. This will make you feel powerful. This will make you feel good. And then clink. Sin is a shackle that keeps you and I in spiritual bondage. It's a shackle. And the only one whose glory is weighty enough to break those chains is Jesus. And we are about to see him in his glory. Verse 7, look, he's coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all people on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and is to come, the Almighty. Jesus' gospel story is what will last. Alpha and Omega, the, the beginning and ending letters of the Greek alphabet, God is saying, I am the A to Z. All of history, start, middle, and end is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. His story will prevail. His purpose for the world will be the only thing that matters and will last. And so to worship Jesus fully, we need to see his triune divinity. We also need to see his gospel story. The third thing we need to see is his glory. Let's go see what John says. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patience endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamum, Theatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. You see, Patmos was a prison. John was exiled to Patmos for proclaiming the word of God, for testifying to Jesus. And so here's a map that shows where Patmos is, a very small island. You also see Rome as referenced there. That's where we finished in the book of Acts. And so Patmos is very close by, highlighted in red. And there you'll see the seven churches that John is writing to, which is located there in minor Asia. So John is ex exiled to Patmos, but it's there that he receives the revelation from Jesus. And what is significant is that John received the revelation in the Spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day basically means Sunday. And so that means John received a vision of Jesus' glory, whilst John 
if we're thinking of what Christians do on the Lord's Day, which is what we're doing is to worship Jesus, it was very likely John, even by himself on the island of Patmos, he would have decided to do some form of worship to God on a Sunday. And there he gets this amazing revelation, which is the entire book of Revelation. So that means you can read the book of Revelation as an extended Sunday service. That's the the context of what John was doing on the Lord's Day in a prison in the island of Patmos. The book of Revelation is one extended worship service. And I think that just gives us a totally different perspective for us coming to worship God on a Sunday. Because if you ever doubted coming to church on a Sunday is worthwhile, just read Revelation 1. When we come to worship God on the Lord's Day, well, here we receive the revelation of God through His Word and by His Spirit. If you ever doubted whether coming to church on a Sunday will will actually help your battles in this week ahead, read Revelation 1. The book of Revelation will show us that what we face this week are a battle that is going to be beyond the office, office politics that you're going to experience this week. We have a battle that is beyond family dramas that we're going to experience this week. We have a battle that requires us to gather on Sunday to be equipped to face a spiritual battle that is warring over our minds and our hearts and our souls. James Jordan, a theologian who wrote a commentary on Revelation, calls this liturgical warfare. And he makes this very provocative statement, which I think should stir our thinking and our attitudes towards Sunday. He says, There is more to our heaven-positioned worship, however. Worship is also holy war. Our warfare is not necessarily against blood and the flesh, but against principalities, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. He goes on to say there are no steel swords, there are no machine guns, there's no drone drop bombs that can destroy the demon-inspired ideologies that enslave human beings everywhere. So how do we Christians engage in this holy war against the spiritual forces of darkness? Well, it's when we come together to pray and intercede for this world that's when we are fighting against the darkness, the spiritual forces. When we pray, that is our form of weapon. When our minds are renewed by God's word, when we are built up in the faith through songs and affirmations of the truth, when we bring people into worship with us to meet the risen Lord Jesus, we are bringing captives to have their sin shackles broken. Worship is warfare through the power and might and the lordship and the glory of Jesus. And that is what John sees as he's on Patmos. It's Sunday. He's worshiping and he hears a voice like a trumpet. And so he turns and then when he turns around, he sees something even greater than what he hears. Verse 12 
I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like blondes glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like sound of rushing waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. So when John turned around, he saw seven lampstands. The seven lampstands represents those seven churches in Asia Minor. Why would the churches be represented as lampstands? Well, it's because Jesus taught that on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are my followers, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, nor can a light a lamp and hide it under a cover, but a stand, but put the light on the stand to give light. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they can see your good works and give glory to your Father. And standing in the middle of the seven lampstands is someone like the Son of Man. Son of man in the Hebrew language just simply means human being uh, or like a male. And so if you're a son of someone, then you are a son of man. But in the storyline of the Bible, the term son of man has a special significance. In the book of Daniel, in chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of someone like the son of man, someone like a human being. But the son of man that Daniel sees is given power and authority from God, so he rules over all time and all history. And so when John turns and saw one like the Son of Man, it doesn't mean he's looking at someone like a human being. It means that when he looked around, he saw a human being, yet someone who's also much greater, and that someone is Jesus. And John goes on to describe what he saw when he saw Jesus. And again, we need to remember with the symbolic language of Revelation, John isn't describing necessarily what Jesus looks like, but describing what Jesus is like. As John first says, Jesus was dressed in a robe with a golden sash around his chest. You're thinking, oh, that's maybe not so dramatic or, you know, overpowering. You know, when do we wear robes? When we wake up and... We want to have a sleep in and read our paper. We dress in our robes. But in the Old Testament, there were two significant people who wore robes, kings and priests. Kings and priests were the ones that wore robes. And so Jesus is symbolized as one who rules and one who mediates and intercedes for his people before God. Jesus' hair was like white like wool, white as snow. In Proverbs, white hair signified wisdom. So I'm still a very long shot away from Jesus' wisdom. I'm not quite as white as snow as Jesus. But John sees Jesus as full of wisdom. Jesus' eyes were like a flame of fire. Think about how we say, someone can see right through you. When we say that, we're saying that there is some piercing intensity with their vision and, and sight. 
It's like they can not only just look at us, they can look through and into you. That is exactly what John is trying to describe, that when Jesus' eyes were like flame of fire, his feet were burnished bronze, meaning that Jesus is not going to get knocked down. Jesus is firm. And Jesus' mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. And if you know the book of Hebrews, it talks about the Word of God as being living and active, as a sharper than a double-edged sword. So the words that Jesus speaks are the very Word of God. As such, there is power in his speech that cuts to the very heart of our being. And this is very extremely important to understand, again, to contrast our world with the kingdom of God. Our world only respects power that comes from the mouth of a gun. But the kingdom of God, we respect the power that comes from the mouth of the sun. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world do things very differently. As Christians, the weapons that we hold isn't in our hands. The weapon that we behold is the words that we speak from our mouths. And so John, he hears a loud trumpet, he turns around, and he sees the full glory of Jesus as the glorious king and priest in all wisdom, in all firmness, in all power. So how does he respond to that vision of Jesus? Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John is so afraid. He's so in awe. He's so captivated. He hits the floor like he's he's dead. And so what does Jesus say when he sees John hitting the deck? What would you say? What would I say if I was crucified, died, and was risen back from the dead? What would you say? You're like, you probably would say, yeah, look, I'm back. You know, you're like, yeah, knuckles crack. How do you like me now? Huh? That's probably what you would say. Let's be honest. That's what you would say. But what would Jesus do? What would he say? Jesus puts his hand on John. And this is what he says, verse 18. He says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Do you see how radically of a contrast that is? Jesus is dressed like a king. You can say he's kind of glowing in the dark and yet he very intimately places his hand on John and says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Which means, fourthly, if we are to worship Jesus fully, we are also to see his heart. Jesus says he is the first and the last. God is referred as the Alpha and Omega. Now Jesus is saying, I am the first and the last. Jesus is saying, I am God. Fear not, John, I am God the living one. I died, but now I live forever, and now I hold the keys of death and Hades. If Jesus holds the keys of death and Hades, what does that mean? It means that he has authority over them. He's in charge over death. They do not exist outside of his control. 
And notice also where Jesus is standing. He's not standing standing center stage and the churches are on the side. Jesus is standing in the middle and the lamps are standing around him. He's in the middle of the churches. The churches are shining, and, but they're shining with the full strength of the sun, who's bright as the sun. The churches are shining a light that is not their own. And what is, is he holding? He's holding these stars. The stars might represent angels, but it might also represent the messengers of the churches. The Greek word for angels and messengers, it's the same. But either way, what it means symbolically is that Jesus is saying, I hold your protection and your message in my hand. I am right here among you, church. I know it's been hard. I know you've been persecuted. I know that following me is challenging. But I want you to know that I am right here. And I hold your message and I hold your protection in my very hand. So what do we see? We see Jesus is God. He's glorious and terrifying, but he's also gracious, loving and kind, merciful and forgiving. If you're not a Christian, I do hope this vision of Jesus does unsettle you. I hope that Jesus unsettles you enough to explore him more, to explore him as God who is awesome, somewhat terrifying, but loving, forgiving, and gracious. I hope it unsettles you to explore further with us. We'll love to do that with you. If you are a follower of Jesus, I think our response is to stop treating his words so lightly. His words are not only for hearing, his words are for us to take to heart, for keeping and obeying. So where are you today? Does his words stun you? Does it make you turn your face to the ground? Or do you need to see that Jesus places his hand on you and tells you, do not fear. I forgive you. I died for you. You are free from the shackles of sin. I am with you. I am with you. You're not alone. So do you see Jesus rightly now? Do you see his triune divinity Do you see Jesus' gospel story of redemption? Do you see Jesus' glory? Do you now see Jesus' heart? Now that we've seen him rightly, let's now worship Jesus fully. Worship Jesus fully from now until he returns. Let's worship him fully and see our lives formed to have this permanent posture of bowing before Jesus. Because when people come face to face with Jesus, they don't need to be told to worship Jesus. Jesus never coerces anyone to bow down before him. They just do because of who he is. He is God. 
He's the Alpha and the Omega. It's the natural and inevitable response to fall on our faces in worship of Jesus. And so here's the challenge, Chapel Hill. Do you find you have to muster up some strength to worship Jesus? Do you find yourself having to coerce yourself to obey and follow Jesus? If so, maybe it's less about your disciplines and more about not seeing Jesus rightly in the first place. Because if you truly see who Jesus for who he is, your response will be exactly like John. So the question is, what is the posture of your heart before Jesus today? What is the posture of your heart before Jesus today? Let's see Jesus rightly so we can worship Jesus fully. Let's fall at Jesus' feet today. Let's repent of our sin, receive his grace, and worship the Alpha and the Omega. Please join me in prayer. Our Father who was, who is, who is to come, we thank you for your perfect spirit and your faithful Son who granted to us this amazing vision of the glory of your Son so that all of our false images of Jesus can be torn down. Help us to see Jesus rightly so we can worship you more fully. Please change the postures of our hearts. May we surrender our lives by taking to heart your mighty and powerful words and help us to not fear for our protection and your message is in your hands. Help us to trust you that you are indeed amongst us. May we, your church, shine your light fearlessly. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.